those of you who've, who've been along to some of the earlier lectures will know that they've been kind of uh, drawn and, and some perhaps culled from uh, a book I have coming out next year on kind of contemporary as poetica. Uh, and I had, <laughs> I had prepared about an hour on the Faunus theme. I don't know if you know what one of these is, but an hour is much too long to spend on that thing. Um, but I will uh, 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 talk about it at, at some point. But what I thought would be a bit more fun, because uh, as uh, Sally says, there are a few of us here who have an interest in this kind of thing, was to speak a little bit of poetry and science. Um, and I'd like to start with that rather notorious statement of uh, Paul Dirac's, you know, the theoretical physicist, um, when he said that the aim of science is to make difficult things understandable in a simpler way. The aim of poetry is to state simple things in an incomprehensible way. Um, but we need to kick that into touch. Although, having said that, I know the kind of poet uh, that, that Dirac was referring to here. And... Um, <laughs> I can think of poets alive today, you know, who do regard uh, difficulty and complexity as, you know, self-evident virtues. I'm not sure they are. But I, I happen to believe also that the aims of poetry and science are broadly uh, identical, both trying to make difficult things comprehensible by putting them as simply as they can. But as Einstein would have added, no simpler. Uh, you can see down here there's a little quote from Zukovsky where he uh, uh, talks about this thing that's attributed to Einstein. I can't find his exact words, but he says something like this. Uh, you'd asked me to say, Kaddish, I believe I would have said it for him. How fathom his will, who had taught himself to be simple. Everything should be as simple as it can be, said Einstein, but not simpler. Uh, so it's, a, it's a brilliant uh, uh, aphorism, I think. Um, Zukovsky, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Dirac, in the earlier statement, was dissing uh, Robert Oppenheimer who, as you know, was one of the, uh, the major architects of the, uh, the, of the atom bomb. A good man in his way, but he did, he did contribute that. Um, and to Dirac's distaste, he'd found out that Oppenheimer was indulging the dark art of poetry in his spare time and didn't approve, uh, even if he wasn't exactly uh, troubling Yeats. Here's, this is an example of Oppenheimer not troubling Yeats down here. I'm glad you can't read it. It's very poor, but he was an enthusiastic poet. But not a great one. Um, that's what he was good at, was blowing stuff up. Uh, a very educated man and uh, learned Sanskrit, you know, and uh, was thus in a good position to quote, uh, you know, a more famous line of poetry that he's known for, which is Krishna's speech in the Bhagavad Gita, where he says, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, which is what he said when uh, the Trinity test went up. Um, chilly. Um, but... As has been pointed out by several people, there's really no scientist that was ever as committed to justifying his work on aesthetic grounds alone as Paul Dirac. Uh, so you can sort of talk, really. His method consisted of, as he said, and I'm quoting, simply examining mathematical quantities that physicists use and trying to fit them together in an interesting way, regardless of any application the work may have. Which is amazing. Um, uh, Graeme Farmillo remarked in an article recently, this is a bit like trying to write a poem by assembling the words in an attractive order and then seeing if it reads as poetry. Now, this cracked me up, because that's exactly the way you write poetry. Um, so I think there's been a little miscommunication there. I hope I've made that clear. Um, the lyric principle uh, you know, basically states that sound and sense are aspects of the same thing, and the brain correlates them so strongly that the symmetries of one uh, are irrevocably irrev bound 
to the symmetries of the other, uh, meaning you only really have to get half right to drag along the other half. In other words, if it sounds right, it's probably true. Uh, I think this is the way our brains work. Um, it's exactly this principle of aesthetic symmetry equaling the truth that led Dirac to predict uh, the existence of antimatter in his famous equation which combines quantum theory uh, and uh, special theory of relativity. Um, and I think also this business of aesthetic symmetry equals the truth is very close to what we call iconicity in linguistics, which is the basis of this, this uh, conflation of sound and sense that, that, that poets have. Um, so this is the thing that I was going to speak about for an hour, so if you'll just indulge me for five minutes, I'll, uh, I'll get it over with. There's a, there's a lovely system buried into the language, underneath all the syntax and all the grammar, which you could call a phonosemantic system. Uh, and all it means is there's a tendency for things to sound like the things they mean. This has been argued about since uh, Plato and the Cratylus dialogue, of course, but, uh, but this is what we now call uh, iconicity. And, uh, and um, Pace said, the word signifier, the word itself, isn't arbitrary, but it shares real content with its signified, with the thing it represents. And you know this when you're three years old. Um, you know if you go mum, tum, thumb, bum for the first time, yeah? Uh, and you're kind of delighted because not only do they sound similar, but they all have the same quality. They all the same have the, the, the same rounded and warm feel about them. It's to do with overlaps in feel between words, the shared quality of roundness or shortness or sharpness or bluntness or brevity or lightness or brightness. They're very often betrayed by a common sound that's shared between those words. And this is an inter interlingual phenomenon. So the short uh sound, regardless of what language you're speaking, is generally heard as something brief and associated with thin, brief things uh, in a way that seems to be synesthetically universal. Um, Ramachandran, V.S. Ramachandran, has argued that this might have its origins in sort of crosstalk in your brain between overwired bits of the modular architecture that really shouldn't be speaking to each other as much as they are. So they get kind of mixed up. And also in something called exaptation, which is to, is to do with evolution. It's sort of, um, exaptation is when you take advantage of neural pathways that have been developed for something else, for another purpose. Uh, and Ramachandran's idea was that language may have come about through a kind of synesthetic transfer, like a hand signal shaped in uh, imitation of a real form would be instinctively doubled in your mouth. You'd make the same shape in your mouth, and that would shape the kind of cry that you would make and associate with that warning. You know, so that, was, that may have been how uh, uh, language uh, developed. This is seen in our... Uh, um, I couldn't get a good picture for this. Uh, this is seen in our habit of clenching and unclenching our teeth when we're caught with a pair of scissors. So we can see that there's, there's overlap in the brain there. Uh, and he thinks that uh, that might be uh, behind it. And in the 19th century, this was kind of noticed uh, really for the first time quite explicitly. Uh, for example, the sound gleh occurs in a disproportionately high number of words that, that relate to reflected light uh, and sight to be, uh, to be mere chance. So glisten, glare, glow, glower, gleam, glaze, glance, glitter, all the rest of it. Um, they're not related etymologically, most of them, but for some reason, they're all to do with reflected light. They all gather around this gliss sound. Unk sounds, you know, uh, bunk, sunk, puncture, dunk, lunk, trunk. An awful lot of them, again, though unrelated, have this low, sunken, there's another one, heavy, uh, concave feel to them. Uh, sne sounds all sound a bit sniffy. 
pla uh, sounds, and it's related fla, uh, should be the Germanic uh, version, are, are to do with uh, plain. There's another one, but to do with flat things. Uh, and there's a lot gathered around there. And as we now know, new coinages that come into the language automatically gravitate to these little nodes, these little phonostemes. A phonosteme is a point of sound sense coincidence, like gl, meaning reflected light. It was um, coined by J.R. Firth in the 1930s, so the word's been around a while. Um, for example, the word blog is really stuck with us, and, it, came, and it, it had such immediate currency, people almost instantly forgot where it came from. It's from, uh, it's a contraction of weblog, uh, but it's also, as I say here, kind of evolutionarily fit to the language because of its relevant phonostemes and the, and the fact that these are already in related words. So it has the, the bleh phonosteme, and that has connotations of speechiness, yeah? Blather, blah, blow, blame, blah, 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 blah bluster, blah, there's lots of them. I go on. Um, so that's a speechy phonosteme, the bleh sound. And also the og uh, uh, phonosteme has connotations of low, heavy, blunt, and blockage. Bog, log, soggy, fog, cog, and slog. So you can see why the word just sounds right, you know, because to some extent it's enacting what it is. Um, so uh, this really uh, is behind, I think, the idea of the lyric principle in poetry. It's really to do with phonosemantic um, uh, felicity. And it seems to point, to, as I say, to a kind of synesthetic crosstalk where we, we can map a sent one physical sensation to another, uh, you know, using uh, speech as an intermediary. So we hear the roundness in the word moon and the warmth of mum and the ruminativeness of memory. Uh, and the hiss of the sea, and the thinness of needle, and, you know, and the lumpiness of hump, and the speed of quick. Uh, so um, brightness, for example, is a property not only of light, but also of sound and shape and taste and emotional mood and so on. So we'll, we'll hear it in those words too, and it's reflected in our speech. Um, poetry, as usual, refines this kind of linguistic tendency within the language to a kind of crystalline strategy. That's what poetry does. It just takes things that are already going on and, uh, and codifies them. And this binding sense with sound is really the lyric principle in poetry. Um, I always think it's, it's, it's very similar to the way physics is working at the moment. That's quite funny, really, because it's, um, if physics succeeds in this thing about proving string theory true, uh, that's to say... Well, well there you go. Um... Obviously, that's not string theory, you know, but, I mean, it's what it's like, what looked like anything, will it? It's a really stupid diagram, anyway. Um, but if it proves that there's, that, you know, there's some kind of vibrational basis for the universe in the form of string or membrane and proves that material difference is just a manifestation of vibration of just the frequencies, it will be totally identical to the poet's lyric project, which will, that's to say it will show it to be non-symbolic. Yeah? Um, uh, we sing the difference and the similarity between things, and so uh, string theory alleges does the universe. So anyway, just to summarise, to put it all as you know, put it all as simply as you can, but no simpler. Um, there was a um, there was a time when this. Uh, you know, and that no simpler, uh, I think, you know, is really to do with the art of connotation, you know, and, and what we can imply through uh, lyric. There was a time when Einstein's statement, you know, um, was put a different way, but regarded, I think, as so obviously true for both parties that physics and poetry went hand in hand. Um, so what we have, you know, of uh, Heraclitus and Parmenides is recognisably in verse. Um, uh, the former, actually, sort of Parmenides writing in... Uh, 
He's the latter. Um, Parmenides writing in strict uh, hexameter most of the time in, in, uh, in his work, um, or at least in language that kind of uh, evinces a strong lyric principle. Everything flows and nothing stays. Um, the assumed verse, particularly well suited to the philosophical explorations of the natural world and of physical law, because it was unthinkable that there couldn't be a connection between brief, uh, original, and symmetrical and stylish expression and the truth. It was unthinkable to them. If it sounded true, it likely was. Um, now, nature's rules are plainly and, and deeply integrated, and if it reflects them accu accurately, I think their idea was so should our expression of them. Uh, now, poets use it this trick all the time in reverse. I think I've spoken about this before. You know, when we want to say uh, 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 something too much to get past the reader, we rhyme it. Um, and uh, this way the ear will sneak it past the brain um, and uh, basically music is a way of uh, allowing the brain to entertain the unthinkable and that's the way that we use it too if you have an unpalatable truth you know, just rhyme it uh, and everybody believes you, amazing um, and for many hundreds of years in the sciences it was often the preferred option to write in this way, to write a didactic or an allegorical poem uh, rather than a paper or a disquisition uh, one might think of uh, Darwin's uh, forerunners uh, like Constantine Ravonesque or Benjamin Maie or Erasmus Darwin who often favoured the poetic form uh, and it was also of course a way of anonymising and fictionalising this stuff and you know and introducing some plausible deniability if it became a problem uh, I think I've already mentioned that quote of, of Hardy's where he said you know if only Galileo had put his discoveries into verse the Inquisition would have left him well alone uh, it's a good way of keeping trouble at bay is to uh, don't put in a poem but there's a deeper connection too I think other than just that kind of uh, subterfuge which is to do with the intuitive leap that the, the, uh, the composition of poetry can afford us. Um, and this is something I think we see uh, common to both disciplines. Now, I don't know if you can identify the poet here. You get prizes if you can. Uh, dissolve thou too, two solid sense, melt into nonsense for a season, and then in some nobler form condense. Soon, all too soon, the chilly morning, this flow of soul will crystallise. Uh, It's, um, uh, oh, no, and he goes on. He goes on. Uh, and then those who nonsense now are scorning may learn too late where wisdom lies. Uh, that was the great Scott. Never tired of saying that. James Clark Maxwell. Uh, and uh, who also wrote uh, poems, you know, as, uh, as well as uh, defining electromagnetism. Um, the passage probably has less beauty than the thing below. I mean, it's not a great poem, let's be honest. Better than Oppenheimer, but still not yet. But this thing down here, I think, is really extraordinary, you know. To have written, the agreement of the results seems to show that light and magnetism are affections of the same substance and that light is an, ele an electromagnetic disturbance propagated through the field according to electromagnetic laws. Uh, I think is a hell of a thing for a monkey, which we are, you know, to have written. Um, and I think to have read it and understood it uh, when it was first published is, must have felt like, you know, reading the four quartets in the 40s. is absolutely extraordinary uh, uh, insight. Um, but he did believe in the poetic function to allow him to do this kind of thinking. Um, and we can see immediately why Maxwell's equations in a treatise on electricity and magnetism have been so often described, you know, in their beauty and simplicity as poetic. 
you know, in the current dream of, uh, of unification that they have in physics, you know, with this rogue force of gravity that we can't quite fit into the picture, uh, will be brought into the field uh, through one simple, clean equation, I think is no more than an extension of this kind of pre-Socratic poetic ideal. You know, this, uh, this uh, equating uh, truth and brevity somehow with beauty. Um, and certainly the poet, I can't uh, sympathise more with the desire to replace the, the, the wonderful bag of spanners that is the standard model, but seems to hold up at the moment. This is out of date, of course, because Higgs boson, yet to be confirmed. Yay, we confirmed it. Um, so this is a, a cheering layer of date, so maybe uh, we're getting closer to the poetic version. But I still think uh, one of the saddest sentences uh, in human speech at the moment, one that we need to work on and get to scan better, is the standard model is regarded as a theory of almost everything. Damn. Um, but we can... Uh, Nonetheless, I think from this, identify that our twin projects you know, of, of science and of verse or poetry are driven by a common aim, uh, which is to find a language adequate to our experience of reality. Uh, indeed, in the absence of a good equation, scientists are sometimes forced into poetic uh, solutions when they, when, they, when they do have a hypothesis. These solutions are fuzzy uh, and are connotative. Uh, uh, and they're often conditional, and that's pretty much where I live as a poet. That's, uh, uh, that's uh, my home. Um, poets, I know, particularly admire a recent move, uh, a poetic move in cosmology, where if you don't understand something, you just put the word dark in front of it. Uh, so there's, there we go again. And um, dark's a great word, you know. It means you don't know anything at all. Um, and we hear an awful lot of talk in the humanities these days though, uh, of physics envy. Uh, and certainly, I think that, you know, this is a riff that I could elaborate cheerfully. The humanities have suffered badly here. Uh, and this is sort of nervously reflected in everything from the pseudoscientific end of critical theory, uh, you know, to the ridiculous models by which our, you know, uh, research funding, uh, you know, is, is, is currently secured. And the situation has arisen through a lack of self-confidence, you know, a feeling that the arts, unlike the sciences, have no right uh, to value uh, uh, their own production or valorise their own skills in the way that science does. Um, you know, God forbid, of course, that you could just uh, assume that literature has any kind of intrinsic uh, cultural value. Um, but one time, poets really did have poetry envy. You know, it hasn't always been this way. And this was a reflection both of poetry's higher uh, cultural status um, and, uh, and the fact that it was considered not just a valuable mnemonic system, uh, you know, uh, not just a way of singing uh, or articulating uh, the otherwise uh, uh, ineffable, uh, but a legitimate method of working out what the truth was. So many of Clark Maxwell's poems directly address his research. Uh, there was a guy called J.J. Sylvester, an amazing man, who did uh, pioneering work on graph theory and number theory um, uh, in the late 19th century. But he was most proud of this book that he wrote. Um, it's called The Laws of Verse. Uh, in fact, he would sign himself, uh, you know, sort of, uh, in his autographs. Uh, this guy's a kind of amazing, uh, amazingly important mathematician, but he would sign himself as J.J. Sylvester, author of The Laws of Verse. It's his proudest work. Uh, and he subjected poetry here to the same kind of theoretical uh, scrutiny as he did his, uh, his own uh, research. It's maybe one of the smartest books on, on poetics I've ever read. It's the worst uh, and the most wrong, unfortunately, but it's, it's brilliantly clever. Uh, he was no poet, and he knew about, you know, as much about the sonnet as I do about matrix theory, so it was, uh, and, and so it proved, but it's, um, 
You can get this in the internet archive. It's a, it's a bracing read, let me tell you. Um, but I was delighted that he saw in poetry a mystery to be penetrated, you know, because so do I. Um, there are some direct means by which physics and, uh, and maths can shed light on those mysteries. I'll, uh, if I have time, I'll, I might look at a couple of examples, but the, second, the first one's dull and the second one's endless and dull. Um, but there's a reason for its dullness, but that doesn't justify it being boring, does it? Actually, the fact that I know it's boring, sorry. Um, but I'll start with a, a wee uh, example just involving some basic, basic arithmetic, which you wouldn't think would come up in poetry much. But I was trying to work out how many kinds of, uh, of metonymy you could have. Now, I don't know if you know, a metonym is a trope of contraction. That's where you just use the attribute or a, the relation of a thing to stand for the thing itself. So you say White House instead of the president, because that's where he lives. So you say England for the English football team. Uh, and the classic textbook example is... Um, you know, when do you call a man uh, a ham sandwich? You know, and it's, you know, when he's in a restaurant uh, and you're a waiter talking to another waiter and you're wanting to give somebody the check and you say the ham sandwich wants its check. You know, and you don't mean the ham sandwich, you mean the guy who ordered the ham sandwich because these are the local rules of the, uh, of the restaurant. Um, in, uh, so there's, there's a big fight at the moment about how many different kinds of metonymy uh, there are. Uh, and I can reveal the answer is 36. Isn't that reassuring? Um, it's because in this thing called conceptual semantics, there are nine things, ways you can describe things that humans are interested in. Nine primitives, nine little categories. Uh, and they are um, action, place, thing, event, state, path, property, manner, and amount. That's the whole show. Uh, it's really quite exciting because you can analyse any sentence uh, uh, by doing this. Um, and basically, you just have to work out how many combinations uh, you've got, you know, and, and that's the, the whole show. Um, and that's the wee sum at the bottom there, 9 factorial over 2, 9 minus 1 gives you 36. And that's, as it says at the top, maybe my sole contribution to human knowledge. This is why I'm overweeningly proud uh, of that. So if you hear anybody say that, that was me that worked that out, because um, I haven't worked out anything else at all. But I hope that. Um, so, uh, and that allows you to, you know, to connect one category to another. So, uh, White House would be a place for thing metonym, uh, and the first 11, you know, for, you know, for football team, is a number, you know, for thing, uh, and Wembley is a place for event, and my favourite place for event is Edinburgh, you know, spoken by people who mean the Edinburgh Festival, because um, as you know, Edinburgh disappears like Brigadoon on the 1st of September. Uh, um, so, I, the reason I provide this dull example, and it is dull, and I know that, is... Uh, I think the connections between disciplines are most strong when you can point to a direct link. Too often our conversations about poetry and science founded in sort of stupid, facile uh, analogies, um, often based on a misunderstanding of one another's practice that both sides refuse to admit, but just as often a, you know, a tendency to mistake a metaphorical correspondence for a direct relation. Um, so I've heard people say, for example, that when we move away from the received forms of poetry, like the sonnet and the villanelle, and the sestina, spit, um, I, and that's somehow connected with our move away from the Newtonian model towards a, a, you know, a, a, a more relativistic model. I mean, this is just garbage, surely, is it not? Um, and I think what we're doing there is mistaken, uh, you know, it's the old logical f fallacy of mistaking correlation. Uh, for cause. You have to give some account, in other words, of the intermediary mechanism, you know, where these things influence each other. You can't just attribute it to some 
etheric magical cultural semiosis but you have to explain how one thing impinges on another um, I think the answer is to look for genuinely deep analogies between stuff um, and I think when you stumble on those if it's a good one they tend to be non-trivial so when you find a deep analogy and say you see uh, to take a motif uh, the branching motif in a tree or a nerve or a tributary system or a pattern of electrical discharge, it usually indicates that there's a common uh, dynamic process behind them. And when we find those kind of motifs sharply reproduced across different disciplines, we've often stumbled on a more complex and integrated mapping than the initial kind of uh, contact uh, may have revealed. Uh, and when we start to examine that larger analogy and how it might play out in a native discipline, it gives, often gives us a weird kind of predictive uh, capability. The trouble is that the good ones are going to be complex. Uh, poor analogies, uh, you know, things like the meme, which is a bit like a gene, oh, it's not really, uh, this is an absolutely dreadful analogy. And I think poets immediately recognise in that the overextended conceit. You know, it's just like you don't need to run that far with it. Um, or other things like uh, poets are as bad, I shouldn't not blame them, their constant indication of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, or the uh, bloody, what is it, the cat, you know, Schrodinger's cat, uh, you know, wherever they feel uh, mildly confused about anything, these tropes will often be introduced. Um, th these are now in the band list. There was, I just did a wee band list uh, on the train there just now, so just to so as you're up to speed, the words currently banned at the moment are shard, myriad, iridescent, maram grass, weirdly, uh, and certain deputy subjects, just the old ones, cats, rainbows, angels, uh, regional cheeses, water, and how cool it is. Sorry, was that another Something else that I missed? Uh, the science bits really get me, though. Uncertainty principle, uh, Schrodinger's cat, quantum entanglement, and dark matter, I think, you know, really have to be out for the foreseeable future until somebody does something interesting with them. Um, the trouble is they're interesting enough, <laughs> you know, and poets really have nothing to add. Um, so, as I say, you know, the interesting comparisons are going to be complex. Um, I gave, I think, what I hope was one earlier, if you heard that earlier lecture, where I was looking at different kinds of noise, you know, white, brown and pink noise, uh, and I suggested that, you know, if a poem is really going to be about epiphany, then the noise it makes should be kind of pink. That's to say, it should make a move from the known to the unknown. It should make an uncorrelated leap from a correlated position. And that's a sort of pink noise uh, uh, analogy. So I think that's one. Uh, and you might be in luck, and I might skip this whole bit. Um, which, you know, when you see the diagram, you'll be going, oh, thank God you never read it. Um, do you know what I think I will? Uh, what I was going to, I'll just put the, uh, the, uh, the diagram up. And the only reason I was going to uh, talk about it is because it's the only kind of science that I really know anything about at all. And I don't know much about it, but I used to work in music and did some engineering and worked in, and did a bit of signal processing. Um, and there are really interesting correspondences between, uh, as it, up here, um, certain kinds of synthesis and certain kinds of uh, uh, approaches to connotations in words. Uh, so I'll just summarise very quickly. Um, you can do an amazing thing with something called Fourier transforms, which is basically any sound that you make, whether it's a violin or a voice, you can represent by a series of sound uh, sine waves. Just stack them up, and if you get them in the right order, they sound exactly like the thing itself. It's really quite astonishing. Just so, and a sine wave, of course, is the simplest kind of wave. So you stack them all up at different frequencies, and all of a sudden you're hearing a perfect violin note. Um, and and uh, 
there's a certain kind of, uh, that's what they call additive synthesis, just adding one wave to another. And there's a certain kind called inharmonic, where it's sort of dynamic and it's about how sound changes um, over the course of time. Uh, and it's very, very similar to the way that connotation works in language and the way that, you know, uh, no word steps into the same sense twice because it's always in a different uh, semantic context in the sentence, but it'll have nonetheless various connotations that remain fundamental and close to the, the loudest note, loudest wave, if you like, that's being sounded. And it's possible to conceive of a word in a particular context, you know, through a kind of additive synthesis. And I think it's a decent analogy and I think it holds up. This is the way people tend to represent it at the bottom, you know, with various, you know, kind of magisteria, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and connotations within that. But I think there might be a way of thinking about it that's closer to, to, to a, a synthesis model. Um, and so, as I say, you know, um, it's pretty boring, and I'm not entirely convinced it's going to be useful, but that, I think, is the kind of analogy we'll have to be speaking about between the uh, disciplines if there's a conversation to be had. Now, I should confess that when I've participated in these kind of colloquia before, you know, poetry and science, while a nice afternoon was had by all, um, the conclusions drawn were always so pointlessly anodyne, I think, very often, as to be quite worthless. I recall one uh, science and poetry symposium where we loftily con concluded that, um, I've, got, I've got the uh, conclusion here, the uh, <laughs> two days, <laughs> they both represent attempts by humans to describe the world. You know, but it really could have faxed that in, I think, you know. Um, so I think, the, it was marked, I think, you know, so by the fact that few of the scientists had read any poetry at all, and even fewer poets had read any science, you know. What was the... We should just go out to the pub and spoke about the football, but there we go. Um, I think the bottom line is these kind of non-trivial connections, uh, you know, uh, through which the most useful conversations can be conducted, really do require some minimal understanding of each other's uh, uh, work. Um, Nonetheless, I think the odd way of thinking that poetry offers, you know, which is imagistic and intuitive and uh, connotative and polysemic, you know, um, effectively treating language like a kind of what, the, what in master would call a phase space, you know, it's sort of built from many different uh, uh, dimensions, you know, where you plot a point within it. Um, and once you have this kind of construct of language, you know, which is a lyric, a rhythmic quality, and a semantic quality, you know, and a pragmatic quality, it's just instinct after that. And you just try and figure out a beautiful move within it, as a chess player does when they look at a board. They don't see a board as a bunch of branching paths. Really good chess players see it as a kind of gestalt, and they say, what looks beautiful within that, you know, force field? Um, so, and I think that habit that we have of, of trying to make that beautiful move within the poem, um, you know, is, is something that, you know, relates to science. Uh, it can encourage the very imaginative leap that Maxwell describes, where this kind of lead of his solid sense uh, can be vaporised in his poem uh, and, you know, and disappear into a kind of chaotic realm, uh, free from its own kind of logic, and then be reborn as a crystalline uh, new thought. Um, The other thing to consider is the fact that our worldview is really uh, very affected by the sort of received ideas about uh, science, which are often coming with the mother's milk, really, and, and, and they're, you know, they're learnt, picked up by osmosis. Our ideas about how the universe you know, kind of functions as a, as a machine. As that understanding becomes 
more available and improves and changes. So the kind of cultural metaphors that we use to describe where we are will, will change too. Um, and these metaphors really strongly govern the kind of thinking that we do much more uh, powerfully than, uh, uh, than I think you sometimes uh, suspect. I mean, I suppose a favourite example would be the fact that we always think about looking into the future, don't we? We always think of the future as ahead of us. It's ridiculous, you know? Well, I mean, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a really bad prepositional metaphor. You can't see into the future, you know? The Greeks, on the other hand, had a far more sensible idea, which was the future was behind them, but they couldn't see it. The past was ahead of them, you know? How much less hubristic is that way of looking at time than the way that we do? And, you know, what, what, what's going to be the price of that lousy metaphor? Um, I think the main way that science influences poets is that kind of thing. It's going to be largely unconscious. When these ideas have enough currency to bed down in the popular consciousness, the poetry that's written is going to reflect that. But we're still really writing Newtonian poetry, I think. We haven't caught up with, with Einstein yet. Uh, and never mind uh, with, a, with a boson. Um, and, you know, as I evidence by the number of times people will confuse relativity and relativism, which are not the same thing at all. Um, Hence the importance of science writing, you sort of being communicable, because I think that, you know, the danger is that our own uh, art will get so out of step with the science uh, that um, uh, it won't have its adequate symbols for reality anymore. You know, it won't just be untruthful, but it'll turn again false and superstitious and mysterious and magical in the worst sense. Um, I thought I was thinking about this recently because I was, uh, you know, I'd been writing on Shakespeare's sonnets a couple of years back, and it's interesting to sort of see the extent to which the Elizabethans themselves were in the grip of their own mad ideas about the nature of physical law. Um, and often it was there in the tiny wee uh, details. Uh, I'll get rid of that wee baby there. I've been looking at him long enough. Um, where This isn't much better as diagram goes. It's done rather hastily. Um, from Sonnet 27, he says, Save that my soul's imaginary sight presents thy shadow to my sightless view, which like a jewel hung in the ghastly night makes black night beauteous and her old face new. Um, and another wee example there, I'll just sort of, uh, if you check that out just now, the key line here uh, is creating every bad a perfect best, as fast as objects to his beams assemble, his eye beams, uh, uh, you know, as uh, what Shakespeare means there. The Elizabethans were mental because they assumed a kind of broadcasting intent on either side uh, of the beholder and the beheld, you know, both uh, had intent, and conceived of the gap between the eye and the object as a kind of medium through which stuff was conducted back and forwards, with your eye beams here firing out, and the objects, uh, as you see with this wee bird here, sending back little optical simulacra of themselves back into the eye beams. Uh, and what lay behind this was, was an idea of a kind of sensory and emotional landscape that's totally alien to us, but it was working on, when you think about it, it makes sense in terms of their health, deep principles of transmission and contagion and infection uh, and sympathetic resonance uh, and ultimately a kind of uh, uh, porosity of both body and soul um, that would receive and would give out. Uh, body and soul always being primed to harmonise or disagree with whatever was out there. Uh, and, and it's a lot more fun in our physical reality, you know, I think. It may not be true, but ours is terrifyingly passive, I think, uh, in every sense. Um, <coughs> 
things on that front, one would hope, uh, would change relatively soon. Uh, if somebody like, I don't know if you read this guy, there's a, a, a Michael Stuart Kaufman, and he's a complexity theorist, uh, and he, he came out of biology. And he's one of these people that speaks about emergence, you know, uh, which is what happens in a complex system when someone comes out that you couldn't foresee, like us, for example. You know, nobody saw that coming uh, at all, I hope. Um, and we see emergence come, uh, 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 sort of uh, emerge now as a kind of non-supernatural God substitute, I think, for some of us. Uh, basically, it turns out that the world's signs are maybe far more motivated than we gave them credit for. Um, so religion and theism, you know, might yet turn out to be a kind of a sound hunch, only a very badly expressed metaphor for the hunch, uh, which has the hunch, uh, you know, or rather a wonder that the universe appears to be alive with self-organised creativity, which it increasingly appears to be. Um, at the very least, we're starting to see things are much weirder than that passive sort of worldview status uh, uh, states they are, uh, and thank God for that. Um, I do think that when such extraordinary scientific detail starts to feed into the poetry, it will cease to be quite as dead as it can occasionally be at the moment. Um, you do see that sort of stuff sometimes foreshadowed in great 20th century poets who acted like almost prophets. They seem to know this, this, this weird stuff was in the wind. Rilke certainly would be an obvious candidate. Uh, and Robert Frost too, I think, uh, maybe one of the... Uh, well, I think they were you know, the greatest English language poet of the last hundred years, easily. Um, and certainly one of the most scientifically literate. But you wouldn't know that about Frost, because it was always kept quite quiet. It was always buried in the poems in the most kind of unflashy way. Um, and I maybe just wanted, uh, thought I'd finish up with talking about Frost's real engagement with science and what it looks like. Um, I gave a long lecture uh, a, a couple of years back on a poem called West Running Brook, which is a long uh, soliloquy. Um, it's a sort of, sort of a dramatic monologue, but it's really a uh, philosophical exposition about the nature of stuff. Really, really quite brilliant. Again, in an almost pre-Socratic examination of material and what it is. And it's supremely contemporary, and I think it's uh, become so. There's a couple of wee bits in it that I might draw your attention to. Um, he's talking about this river that's flowing the wrong way and also flowing backward on itself. And he describes the river, uh, you know, the flow that spends to nothingness and unresisted, save by some strange resistance in itself, not just a swerving, but a throwing back as if regret were in it and were sacred. Um, so what he's talking about with the river here is that it's all hopeless, that nothing can resist this flow, this cataract, plunging us all on, as the poem goes on to make clear, towards the heat death of the universe, except for some strange resistance in matter itself. Um, and this resistance is sad and regretful, and it's a throwback, and it's a nostalgia, you know, as if there were some regret in the river, and maybe in us too, for departing from the unity uh, that we once were before the Big Bang. And having embarked, as embarked on this kind of lunatic, time-driven torrent, uh, you know, sort of to entropy, driving us all apart, you know, in this, uh, uh, you know, in this kind of incarnated, but Shakespeare calls it separable spite, dri driven apart. Um, Frost is quite close to suggesting that we ourselves and our works uh, are composed of the universe's regret, uh, that our world and sun are really the, 
nostalgia trips of physics and, and it's all a little feedback loop within something that's just been driven apart. And he goes in to say something quite beautiful in the poem about this. Um, it has this throwing backward on itself so that the fall of most of it is always raising a little, sending up a little. He's just talking about the wee wave in the, in the river at this point. And then he says, our life runs down and sending up the clock. The brook runs down and sending up our life. The sun runs down and sending up the brook. And there is something sending up the sun. So as the larger thing runs down, the smaller thing gets sent up. And the thing running down sends up order, sends up poetry, clocks, rivers, uh, suns, and uh, us. Uh, and he says, it is this backward motion towards the source, against the stream, that most we see ourselves in, the tribute of the current to the source. It is from this in nature we are from. It is most us. So the same motif there, you know, the ancient unity turning against entropy is inscribed in us and in our speech. Uh, and, and I do think poetry at its best is just that. It's a tribute of the current to the source. And poetry, uh, in many ways, is most us. Um, and I've loved to, to, to speak to Frost uh, uh, now about the idea of autopoiesis, which is a, a word Kaufman uses a lot, beautiful word. Um, it's, it's sort of defined as a dialectic between the material structure of stuff and its function uh, of just the sort that's described in Frost's own poem uh, and whose poetry itself rises from the agitation uh, you know, of structure and function in a way you couldn't uh, possibly uh, uh, see the outcome of. Um, uh, and ends up with a beautiful, self-sustaining, weird uh, whole. Um, I'll look briefly now at a wee poem called Design, um, which is really to do with Frost's wonder at blind nature. But typically for Frost, it's a, it's a wonder at the horror uh, of nature. And uh, this is a kind of, a, a, you know, an anti-design. It's an anti-God, anti-design argument poem. Um, but it ends even worse than that. It ends up making a statement uh, you know, uh, about the culpability of the nature of uh, nature herself. Um, and I do, it's a poem about the indifference of the universe towards us. Um, I don't know if you know this poem. A beautiful thing. I found it a dimpled spider, fat and white, on a white halo, holding up a moth like a white piece of rigid satin cloth. Assorted characters of death and blight mixed ready to begin the morning right like the ingredients of a witch's broth, a snowdrop spider, a flower like froth, and dead wings carried like a paper kite. What did that flower to do with being white? The wayside blue, an innocent halo. Who brought the kindred spider to that height and steered the white moth thither in the night? What but design of darkness to appall, but design govern in a thing so small. Um, this is a horrible poem. It's a, it's a horrible in the, you know, the, in the etymological sense of making your hair stand up and end, I think. You know? um, I found a dimpled spider fat and white in a white halo, holding up a moth like a white piece of rigid satin cloth. Um, Dimpled, fat, and white, you know, I think this is Jarrell, Randall Jarrell, that pointed this out, are the kind of adjectives we apply to babies. This is horrible language, and he intends us to feel revulsion from the first line. And then we see this kind of unholy trinity of white stuff. You get the innocent hope of the white heel-all playing host to something that, that heals nothing at all, this tiny, fat, uh, white monster of the spider brazenly holding up his dead quarry like a flag 
uh, you know, or, or, you know, or as Frost says later, a paper kite, a toy, you know, a plaything. Uh, then a sorted characters of death and blight mixed ready to begin the morning right. Characters as a double sense, uh, of course, as, as well as assorted players. They're also written signs, you know, algebraic signs of death and blight that spell something timeless about the law. Um, I don't think there was ever a bleaker and more bitter line than mixed, ready to begin the morning right. This is the way the planet starts the day, you know. Um, not with a full English breakfast, but uh, with death on a plate. Um, and we're starting to see Frost's thesis already here. The title's Design. We believe in design, you know, either the absolute blind design of evolution, uh, which is, you know, it's anything but random, but so it has the appearance of design, or the design of um, uh, an unseen hand, uh, a god, uh, we tend nonetheless to regard it as a thing of wonder, even if we keep God out of it. You know, what a wonder that the stars could form, uh, that the eye could evolve, that the individual creatures that make up slime moulds amazing. Have you read about slime mould, for example? It's just some really incredible stuff. Uh, that it could reform itself into such amazing shapes. Um, uh, we tend to underplay uh, uh, the fact that much of this design, you know, when it's not empty, is also just horrible. And this is what Frost is telling us here. He's rubbing our faces in it. Like the ingredients of a witch's broth, a snowdrop spider, a flower like froth, dead wings carried like a paper kite. Um, you know, compounding the horror here in this kind of oxymoronic beauty. Uh, uh, you know, of the lyric weave. Horrible things described beautifully to get them past you, remember? Um, that snowdrop spider is a crime against nature. That little pretty flower, the froth. Uh, this is the froth in the mouth of somebody who's sick and fevered. You know, the, uh, the phrase makes your mouth foam. You know, and um, so this is the kind of uh, a design that frost means, you know, an absolute absence. A design indifferent to its protagonists. Even the flower here is horrible. It's supposed to be blue, but it's here in its albino form. You know, it's a white, blue flower. And then that awful line, who brought the kindred spider to that height then steered the white moth thither in the night. Uh, kindred to what, I always think, you know? Just a flower, or maybe kindred to us. I almost feel like it's us he's, he's, he's talking about here. You know, the, you know, the, the standard collocation, kindred spirit. Uh, he's referring to here but then it's immediately subverted the height is lovely, the height is just knee height of course is what he's describing here but it's also the height of Darius, of Achilles of Paul Pot you know, every other murderous flag waving uh, uh, victor uh, who finds his victim de delivered to him by fate and then that lovely line, you know, steered the white moth it's very blakey, don't you think um so, uh, you know, what a mortal hand or eye framed this fearful symmetry? Well, there can only be one answer, really. Um, what but design of darkness to a pole? How could it be anything here but a dark maker behind this? Now, if that had been the last line, it would have been bad enough. But um, if we're to see a non-blind hand, even in this design, uh, it's one who must design, uh, delight in these miniature horrors, you know, even uh, delights in their capacity to uphold the human viewer. So, okay, Frost is saying... You want your argument from design. Okay, have it. But you'd better accept that it's been designed by a demon. Um, and you think it can't get any worse until you get to the last line. Then it gets even worse. Um, and this is where my stomach turns over. Uh, if design governed you know, a thing so small, it just throws it away. You know, and you would barely notice it. Um, what he's saying is that maybe design you know, doesn't work at this level. 
You know, maybe God doesn't sweat the small stuff. You know, at least with the big stuff, you have a sense of someone taking an interest. You know, uh, uh, you know, or, or even evolution paying attention at some level. You know, even if it was a bitter or blind or malevolent one. Um, so Frost may be saying that it designs only for really that cool big stuff that we like to admire, horses, uh, forests, sunsets, the birth of our children. Uh, and maybe what we're, we're seeing uh, in all this overlooked uh, lily poop at our feet here um, and the undergrowth is nothing more or less than the nature of physical law itself without the designer, uh, without the oversight. Um, and we end up uh, finding out that the nature of physical law in which the whole universe is founded in this last line is amoral, rebarbative, and murderous by law. Um, and we end up begging for the demon designer of you know, the uh, line 13 to come back so at least someone could pay some attention. Um, so this is Frost's disquisition on evolution, and it's really uh, uh, astonishing in the way he goes for both God and evolution uh, in this poem. And because this is the last lecture, I thought I would uh, just totally indulge myself just by reading a poem that I really liked at you. Um, with, you know, I'm not really offering much excuse, other than the fact that it's sort of to do with gravity <laughs> a bit. Um, and it's a favourite poem of, of, uh, of, of, of mine of Frost's. Um, and it's about... Uh, it's a sort of mid-life or sort of later-in-life poem, the way that... Uh, when you were young, you were a breatharian, and you could get high on life or anything. Uh, and as, as you get older and your senses get more blunted, uh, uh, you seek more and more extreme uh, things with which to bludgeon yourself into a response. Uh, and he equates this with gravity. Um, it's a two-earth word. Love at the lips was touch as sweet as I could bear. And once that seemed too much... I lived on air that crossed me from sweet things. The flow of, was it musk from hidden grapevine, grapevine springs downhill at dusk? I had the swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle that when they're gathered shake dew on the knuckle. I craved strong sweets, but those seemed strong when I was young. The petal of the rose it was that stung. Now, no joy but lack salt that is not dashed with pain and weariness and fault. I crave the stain of tears, the aftermark of almost too much love, the sweet of bitter bark and burning clove. Soap, as a duplicated stanza. When stiff and sore and scarred, I take away my hand from leaning on it hard in grass and sand. The hurt is not enough. I long for weight and strength to feel the earth is rough to all my length. Finally, uh, a little sciencey poem, which is Amoebus Strip. Now, what do these two things have in common? Um, I'll tell you. This lovely wee uh, uh, poem, uh, Amoebus type poem by Christopher Reed, uh, which is done very slowly. A cycle. As she proffered that enormous gin and tonic the clink of ice cubes jostling brought to mind an amphitheatre scooped from a sun-lulled hillside where a small breeze kied the scent of lemon trees and distant jostle of goat bells bringing to mind an enormous gin and tonic. <laughs>
There we go. I don't know why I put this in, but it's just because I discovered you could do it. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, bit early. Thanks for your attention.